Good morning, Memphis. I hope your day is off to a great start this morning. Do you have your coffee brewing? That's the question. So I have a confession. I have switched to decaf, but I still have coffee, of course, you know, because this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn more about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So it's hard to believe, but it's been about a year since we've been living in a global health pandemic. Among all the other history-making events that have happened over the past year, and you know, here in the U.S., you know, in the face of massive and unexpected changes, as well as unprecedented upheavals that have really meant to preserve both races and classes belief systems, we've really just been attempting to continue life as normal, right? Just go to continue to go to work and continue to do the things that we normally would have done. And unlike other countries, we have not had that collective time to rest, to recuperate, to, to grieve. So how can we have both meaningful and bold conversations, but also take care of ourselves in these very tumultuous times? To talk more about this, joining me today is Dr. Ariel Ashley. Dr. Ashley is an assistant professor of community psychology, counseling, and family therapy at St. Cloud University. She teaches courses on multicultural counseling, student affairs professional orientation and ethics, and group processes and facilitation dynamics. She and her husband co-founded Ashley Consulting. They provide empowering facilitations and interactive workshops for colleges, universities, nonprofits, and other organizations around the world that are interested in pursuing racial justice and gender equity. So welcome, Dr. Ariel Ashley. Thank you so much. So glad to be here with you. Yes, we are so happy to have you here with us this morning. How are you doing? Doing all right, you know, um, trying to find uh, a new uh, a new normal in uh, this new week uh, <laughs> with the inauguration and just trying to, to figure out what um, what it means to wake up um, with a different uh, national leadership um, mm -hmm. and yet still many of the same challenges that are facing our country. Yes, absolutely. It's like so much has changed, but also so much is the same, but also yes. changing. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so I, I completely feel that same way. Um, you know, it's like every morning you have no idea what is about to happen um, in very big ways, right? <laughs> So I was happy to have you join us this morning because I know so much of your work is really created for this time, right? This idea of how do we create meaningful connections, especially in a time where it seems like we are so divided or even that those divisions are just much more in your face maybe than they have been in previous times. So how do we even create, you know, both meaningful co connections, but then also have these bold conversations about topics that as we've seen, we cannot continue to ignore, right? We actually have to talk about all the things that were so taboo, right, previously. So how do we, how do we even start to do this or start to think about this? 
really, really great question. And unfortunately not a, a simple answer, I think. Um, I think part of the challenge of, of time to do earlier, just trying to ground ourselves to figure out who do we want connecting with? Who do we have the capacity with? Um, sense of, of what is important to who we are right now, um, to be able to inform how do we start initiating some of those bold conversations, uh, brave spaces. Um, so I think something that has actually been an unexpected gift um, in light of a, a really challenging year has been, um, for me, uh, an opportunity to slow down, to kind of step away from the natural grind and hustle of life that I have come to just assumed to be normal. And because, right, businesses are closed and schools are disrupted, it has kind of forced uh, a reflection, um, a, a slowing down to think about, um, okay, what do I really value? What really matters? And I think connecting more with ourselves enables us to then also more authentically connect with others. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. I think so often we forget to do that inward connection as you were just speaking about. Um, so thinking about some of that inward reflection and thinking about our own personal values, um, what are some ways that we can even start to have that kind of introspection, you know, with ourselves? Sure. Well, something um, that I have been thinking a lot about lately uh, is just the simple practice of journaling, um, what it means to uh, actually disengage from my computer, from a screen, from a laptop, and like take out a pen or a pencil and paper and write some of my thoughts, especially given kind of the immensity of the time. Um, this is something that I'm going to want to look back on. Perhaps my children are going to want to look back on someday and say like, what were we thinking in that moment? Um, and so for me, it's really been uh, become kind of a, a daily practice. Um, also, I, I regularly um, do meditation and yoga, which has also helped me kind of look inward. Um, when there is so much chaos uh, externally, trying to find and stay grounded in some of that has been really cool. Um, and I think we spend time with ourselves Sometimes initially that can be uncomfortable, uh, depending on whether or not we have created space for introspection before. And so um, for me, that, that discomfort actually, some of that um, uh, dis-ease, that, that uh, perhaps trepidation of like, well, what do I really think and feel about these complex issues like race and neoliberalism and uh, you know capitalism, all these different things. Um, when we start to confront and ask ourselves some of those questions, I think we also begin to um, access language to think about, well, how would I name this in a conversation with someone else? Um, and so that's why I think doing some of that introspection, uh, journaling, reflecting, spending time with ourselves and our thoughts can be so helpful as we begin to think about really bringing these conversations in, into the light uh, to have um, real meaningful, authentic connections with people who might have different perspectives. For us. But because we've done that introspection, we can do some really uh, valuable perspective taking and learn from and with each other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I love the idea of, you know, the meditation and the yoga. I recently started yoga. I guess that was kind of like my New Year's resolution on accident. Um, <laughs> How's but it going? 
It's going really well. A friend of mine um, had just recommended yoga just really so, so I could kind of relax my body, you know, and release some of this tension that we're all holding, you know, in our body. And so I decided I could do maybe like 10 minutes of yoga a day. That was just it. I was like in the morning, 10 minutes, I can commit to 10 minutes. Um, but it has been so lovely to start my day with that kind of quiet time. And, you know, I just went on YouTube and <laughs> found, you know, like different yoga flow videos. But I like how some of the ones that I've been following along with actually set the, the tone of like, you know, different meditations or just different things to think about as you're doing the various poses or focusing on your breathing. And it's been such a relaxing moment and a space to just kind of disconnect um, with, you know, everything that's competing for your attention, as you mentioned, the laptop, the phone, social media, and then just this kind of feeling of like, you should be doing some sort of work. Um, especially if you're working from home, that feeling of like always working kind of bleeds over into, you know, your whole day. So I'm definitely on board with this meditation and yoga. And I love that um, suggestion of journaling, because as we know, diaries and journals really give us a glimpse, you know, for others to give them a glimpse into what has been happening. Uh, but then also for ourselves to maybe go back and read a month or two months or year from now to say, you know, what was really happening. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think these practices, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, journaling, um, they also can invite us to think about um, how we uh, might show up when we're trying to have some of those more challenging conversations that you mentioned earlier. So for instance, um, in, in a lot of my work with college students, um, I'll talk about the importance of like being attuned with your physical self. So like literally the ways in which your physical body is holding emotion, tension, that can be sometimes relieved or reduced with practices yoga. Um, but being attentive for instance, in a mindfulness practice, just following your breath, inhales and outhale, exhales, being able to think of that in a moment, perhaps where you are screwed, get really triggered by something, <laughs> or you turn a channel and you hear something that is just like fires you up. That's like a practice then that you can return to think of, okay, let me take a breath. Let me really think about how do I want to engage do I actually want to engage rather than just getting like drawn in um, where we then end up, I think sometimes in these um, of tailspins of less productive, less authentic and meaningful conversations um, because we haven't really um, started from like a place of center. And so that's why I think, you know, meditation, yoga, journaling, those practices can be really helpful for some of those challenging conversations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When you just said that tailspin, right? You know, sometimes we follow an emotion or a line of thought into completion simply because we haven't been able to disrupt that thought or that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. So that practice of, you know, meditation in the moment or returning to your breathing, 
you know, recentering yourself is so crucial because I can think of even times where you're, you know, really wrapped up in an emotional exchange. And so, you know, tensions are high and you continue to express that until it's completion, usually not in a healthy way or helpful way, right? Uh, but you're kind of caught up in the emotions of it all. And if you could have maybe taken a breath and release some of that tension, you know, in a healthier or calmer way, you may have been able to have a conversation where both parties could have, you know, heard what the other was saying, even if they still didn't agree, but still been able to kind of maintain um, the relationship, right? Since we are really talking about having, holding and having relationships and how difficult conversations are really key to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Something I think that uh, can oftentimes come up when thinking about difficult conversations is um, uh, avoidance. <laughs> How do I not have difficult conversations? <laughs> How do I minimize tension? How do we de-escalate? Um, you know, I'm 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 in Minnesota, and our state has this slogan of Minnesota nice. Yes. And this is like a really um, kind of roundabout way of saying we are really good at passive aggressivity. <laughs> <laughs> so so understandably, there's like this state cultural blanket norm of like really avoiding conflict. And what's been really fascinating for me in my consulting work and in my work as an educator is that I think sometimes there becomes such a strong aversion to those difficult conversations, such a strong fear of conflict um, in a way that actually doesn't serve us well. Now, just in that conflict is like a good or healthy place to be or stay all the time, but I do think for communities specifically that are dealing with really tough issues like we are in Minneapolis, like folks are across the country, like racism, um, that we need to have authentic conversations. Sometimes mm -hmm. that means conflict gonna come up. And so one of the things I think that's really important is actually to not always be averse to some of those tensious moments, but figure out how to show authentically in them, um, how to develop some personal practices to be able to self-regulate in those moments so that we can have, like you were saying, some of the, um, deeper connections and conversations that can really help move us forward rather than just avoiding the conflict in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, those avoidance techniques, I feel like we learned them um, so young and we really use those avoidance techniques um, a lot. I mean, you have the Minnesota nice or like that Midwestern nice in the South, you know, we like to be polite and we, we will definitely beat around the bush until we get to a, a topic, right? So still kind of those avoidance techniques that we're, that we're using and that we're used to. Um, so how can we start to let go of those avoidance techniques and actually begin to open up some of these more difficult conversations? Yeah, um, so I think one of the most valuable approaches in, in my life, personally and professionally, has been um, to lean in when I start to feel discomfort, um, rather than to assume avo that avoidance is the best strategy. <laughs> um, and of course, to be done uh, kind of some self-awareness, uh, 
judiciousness, right? We're not like going into um, emotionally hostile or triggering environments or, or conversations on the regular, right? That's not sustainable or healthy for anyone. Um, but also thinking about what I often talk about with my students as like um, our, our learning edges or that place where that discomfort starts to arise, actually being also an opportunity where um, uh, new insights, where transformation can happen. Um, so some of the things that I have found to be really helpful when trying to lean into that discomfort and lean into that learning uh, has been um, thinking about what it means to practice, to show up vulnerably. Um, you know, there's lots of great work on vulnerability. Brene Brown has this right uh, TED talk that lots of folks have seen um, around the importance of vulnerability. Um, and I think figuring out how to be able to, to name which feeling, discomfort, this ease, uh, being triggered, um, even if we have been socialized or even if the cultural norm is to not name that, right? Um, and so I think vulnerability can be really important. When we're thinking about having conversations that are around power, privilege, and oppression, I think it's essential that we also address identity. What are the identities of the folks who are in the room? Um, what are the identities of the folks trying to initiate the conversation? And what does that mean? Um, I also think it's important that we uh, figure out how to kind of trust the process. Oftentimes, um, uh, <laughs> this phrase comes to mind that my mom always told me when I was younger. Um, she talked about it in terms of cleaning the house, but I applies to having like real conversations about issues of power, like it often gets messier before it gets better. Um, and so sometimes when we're trying to lean in and have bold conversations, like tensions will rise, triggers might happen, we might get offended. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean like abort, abort, run the other direction. You know, what can be done to be able to preserve that relationship? How can we vulnerably name like, oh, that did not sit well instead of trying to maintain facades? Um, and then how can we really like share stories? So I think something that is um, uh, really important in, uh, in building authentic relationships with others and having some of those bold conversations is to speak from experience. It's like wanting to recite what we hear on the news or what we read in a report. But you know, these days we got to all that stuff anyways, um, but to be able to speak from our lived experience and say like, well, this is what has happened to me. This is what I have observed and known to be true. How is that the same or different from what you've experienced? And then being willing to be open to be changed by what we hear from the other person. So actually genuinely listening rather than just waiting until it's your turn to talk again, which is also something I think culturally in the U.S. Um, is hard for folks to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, even just listening to what you were saying, you know, so many of these strategies go against kind of um, our, I don't want to say natural, but our learned communication behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Wanting to be right. So kind of just waiting until it's your turn, you know, to talk and say something or even uh, I think a very just human nature is to protect ourselves and not want to be vulnerable, which these conversations inherently require us to be vulnerable, to potentially be misunderstood or misinterpreted. Um, and then thinking about, you know, what are the costs if I am misunderstood or if I, you know, get it wrong, right? In this conversation, what does that mean for this relationship. So it's very, in many ways, a lot of these conversations, especially these difficult conversations, uh, it seems like the stakes are just so high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think 
you know, um, because of uh, the ways in which systemic racism and white supremacy have been avoided for so long within dominant discourses in the United States, um, of course, the, the learned norm is to stay away from those topics. I think what's really fascinating is, um, you know, with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, with um, uh, even just the ways in which um, language like systemic racism is more regularly on popular culture, news outlets, and things like that, I think there's an opportunity for um, us as a, as a nation to begin to think about um, how can we um, speak truth, our truths, to how we've experienced these dynamics in our, in our lives. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll uh, have conversations with students in my class um, and, you know, there'll be kind of this discrepancy as students of color, perhaps having lived, seen, experienced racism every day, their, their lives. And so it is like not a new conversation. And then their white uh, colleagues and peers saying, but I, something that I've been condemned or has been to see or observe. And so I think one of the things that becomes really important then is to say like, that is also a story, <laughs> like lack of having exposure or the lack of having in the ways in which racism plays out, it doesn't mean that racism wasn't there. It means that part of your socialization was not to see it. And so I think uh, another component of, of this is, is how can we share stories around the ways in which we were socialized? Like, can we make it to ourselves? Huh, when I was growing up, there really weren't that many other people that looked like me in my community. And what is that about? Um, and what might that mean in terms of the ways that I start to develop thinking and world and that I think there's uh, a lot that can be explored as we think about um, socialization or the ways in which we've been normalized to believe certain things, right? The communities were around, the messages we heard from families, teachers, and then recognizing that other people may have been socialized in different ways. And so what might the value be of sharing stories to learn about those differences rather than just um, assume that we're all coming at these conversations from the same place? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll jump more into this conversation about how to have bold conversations. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Ariel Ashley. And we're talking about how to create meaningful connections and also have bold conversations. Of course, this has been a prime year, I say year, even though this year has just started, but it seems like the continuation of one really long year, uh, but a year or time where we've seen people really digging into their own beliefs, very politically polarizing beliefs. Um, and we're seeing these differences um, really split apart friendships, you know, other types of relationships, families and communities, and obviously on the national level, a very big divide as well. And so I'm wondering how can we have um, bold conversations where we can maybe share personal stories and experiences, but also get some, you know, reciprocity as well. Um, this has been on my mind a lot. 
um, just even within my own family and having different opinions, different political opinions, different lived experiences. And like, how can we bridge that? Because I don't think it's enough to just say, well, you have your opinion and I have mine. Like, I don't think that's really the answer. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think that stalls the conversation, right? Allows us to go deeper. And so, um, yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the the ability to to create genuine connection, I think, can be greatly helped by story sharing. And um, if we only create space, hear someone else's story, but then not actually do anything in our lives to be changed by that story, uh, the the real opportunity has been missed. Um, I think in right now, um, I, I know I have felt this way and, and I imagine um, many of your listeners have felt this way too, but the, the, the sense of divisiveness in our country is strong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, whether between political parties, racial groups, um, you know, however you want to look at it, rural and urban communities, uh, this division seems to be very palpable. Um, and uh, I think actually um, it was really well um, by uh, President Biden at the COVID memorial that happened uh, the night before the inauguration, when he talked about the importance of um, uh, remembering uh, where we have come, uh, able to heal forward as a country. Um, I think, you know, whether you look at um, critical race scholarship, whether you just look at lived experiences and, you know, what I'm trying to figure out as a parent of a two-year-old, uh, you know, being able to recall past experience, past dynamics, understand what has um, been uh, acceptable or not acceptable historically is a necessary part of understanding our current context and moving forward. Um, and, and something that I think is um, helpful for me when I do some of that reflecting is, um, yes, absolutely naming and acknowledging the division, the divisiveness in which that's really painful. And I find hope and, and the potential for healing and also recognizing the ways in which we are interconnected. Um, so when I say that, I mean, um, uh, for instance, uh, I don't know if this is going to be a particularly popular perspective, but um, I believe that systemic racism not only violently and acutely hurts uh, color, but also hurts white people. And I think recognizing the ways in which we are hurt in very different ways, of course, um, by the system of power um, that we know as racism can enable us to then think about how do we find common ground, even if how we've experienced that hurt, even if pain has looked very, very across our different identities and lived experiences. And so um, I think looking back historically, um, thinking about uh, the ways in which healing sometimes come from um, finding unexpected or interconnection, um, I think are opportunities for us to deepen that conversation, to stall out, um, like you said, at that kind of agreed agree quota. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, as you were mentioning that, you know, it's goes back to that saying, right, that you can't heal what you don't reveal, like we can't heal something if we continue to ignore it, right, because then what are you trying to fix? There's nothing wrong, right, <laughs> um, if you're not actually acknowledging it, naming it, investigating it, um, and, you know, really giving a realistic view for what the situation is, right, that has to be, you know, the starting point as we move 
forward. Um, now I'm wondering, something you mentioned previously was talking about vulnerability. And I'm increasingly obsessed with this idea of vulnerability, um, simply because I'm a person who has been historically, you know, very vulnerable averse. <laughs> like I have not wanted to take those risks of like being vulnerable with others. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak more on how we even start to create vulnerability, um, even within ourselves, like being open to that idea and then how we can then use that in relationships with others. Yes. Um, so I have been, uh, I guess, like an advocate for vulnerability um, for a number of years. And I, I also want to say like vulnerability looks really different for different people. Uh, and there are different kind of risks and costs associated with being vulnerable, depending on the context and the, our social identities. And so I just, I want to name and acknowledge that. Um, but for me, one of the reasons why I have valued vulnerability so much is because I found it so personal. Uh, um, so when um, we were talking earlier about like meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, so to me, one way to begin vulnerability is when you notice your stomach drop because a topic came up that you normally avoid. Um, vulnerability means naming that and saying it out loud. Like, I feel nauseous right now because this is a topic that I don't like. This is a topic that makes me uncomfortable. This is a topic that scares naming, I think, is both um, immensely vulnerable because you're you're putting out there a, a, a visceral reaction that you're having, but it's also incredibly courageous because in naming how this topic, this conversation is affectively impacting you, it allows that, that conversation to go to a different, um, right, to, to be able to invite the emotional, the affect of what's happening, that to, to believe that that our feelings have have value and insight, um, I think is uh, is really profound. And I think being able to start to practice um, paying attention to how we feel, naming how we feel, as then pathways to explore more about a topic. That is, I think, a great uh, entry point to, to vulnerability. And again, you know, it needs to be engaged with some discernment, right? Like, I'm not just going to vulnerably walk up to somebody at the bus stop and like, like you know, right, we need to, to be thoughtful about, about some of that. Um, and uh, there's been many, many times in my life where um, I have in, in light of COVID and social distancing and everything, more and more isolated, have ached for action. And I found that one of the best ways to foster that connection is when I vulnerably say, I would really love to connect more with you, um, rather than, again, kind of putting on airs and, and, and maybe naming some of that, like, oh, I've been feeling really disconnected or, or really lonely. And, and be articulate that, I think, is, is a huge in, in beginning to create a practice in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I think um, one reason why we often are wary of being vulnerable is because of that fear of rejection. So even as I was listening to you kind of give that final example of like, you know, yearning for connection, which, you know, we all are in ways that we haven't 
probably thought about or had to think about in previous times, but also this fear of like, what happens if, you know, I reach out for this connection and name it and the person is like, ah, I, I don't want to connect with you or, <laughs> or just doesn't receive, you know, what you're trying to share with them. So how can we even kind of put ourselves out there or kind of get over that hump of like fear of rejection in these very vulnerable moments? Mm, yes. Um, a really important question. Um, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, practice. So I mentioned like it's a practice, right? Vulnerability. I think the more that we engage in it, um, similar to to um, other practices, maybe like a yoga practice, right? If you just try yoga once, you're probably not gonna hit crow pose. You're probably gonna tumble forward into a somersault. But if you do a regular practice, you will develop the strength. Um, you'll become in touch with core and your center and figure out how to lean into that posture in a way that allows you to fly and crow. I think really with vulnerability, it's a practice. And so we start to kind of uh, with um, uh, the opportunity to engage um, vulnerability in, in multiple situations can kind of start to feel out how to stay centered in these moments. And one of the things I think connects back to um, uh, our breath and uh, being tuned with uh, what are the narratives that we start to tell uh, versus what's actually happening, right? Mm -hmm. So reaching out, trying to make a connection, um, that does require vulnerability, that does require courage. And if someone does not reciprocate, a lot of reasons for why that is, <laughs> right? And so how do we pause instead of feeling, you know, triggered by that potential rejection? Can we find resolve and say like, okay, that was a practice that didn't turn into a connection. Cool. I'm gonna, gonna take that, process that a little bit, but necessarily mean that, you know, I am lacking in some way or that I have been rejected. It just means like that person wasn't in the time, place or space to connect in that way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think um, being able to um, interrupt maybe some of those thoughts, some of those narratives that we might tell ourselves um, can be a helpful way uh, to say, um, you know what, this, uh, this um, it's not going to turn into a sure thing connection every time. Um, but um, uh, with uh, kind of thoughtful engagement um, can lead, I think, to some really uh, profound relationships. Mm -hmm. I love this idea of this constant practice of disrupting narratives. Mm -hmm. So disrupting our own narratives about ourselves as maybe not being a vulnerable person or, you know, but also disrupting narratives of why people might not be receiving us in the way that we had hoped. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think it's very human of us to be self-centered, right? And to create these big stories where we're, you know, the main character and everything that people do is, you know, know definitely about us right <laughs> when in reality people have their own lives and they're dealing with you know whatever is happening in their life you know as well and it's not a personal um, indictment on us if something doesn't go as we had hoped um, but rather disrupting that narrative that it means oh I'm a terrible person or it's something about me um, but even connecting that to what we were talking about earlier, disrupting narratives that we have maybe grown up believing about how the world is, mm -hmm. which is really what these bold conversations around, you know, racism, around political divisions is about, right? Disrupting what we have believed to be true, whether about our experiences or about different 
classes of people, right? How can we do that? And having these conversations or connections with others is just one way that we can begin to disrupt the narrative and create new ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, um, the power of a personal relationship should not be underestimated. Um, to be able to connect in that way um, allows us to expand our own experience. We talked earlier about our own socialization, our lived, uh, the, the narratives we were taught growing up about ourselves, our communities, other communities. Those aren't in necessarily wrong, but they are also one of what are many different perspectives, worldviews, uh, socialization. And so as we're able to express our understanding of what's happening in the world, we're able to be connected to different perspectives in a way that gives us more information. And that is great. More information is helpful. That allows us to make more informed decisions, actions, to show up in more informed ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, the key is discernment as well, because we do have so much information and so, uh, so much more possibility for connection with others, which is really great. But we also have to have a sense of discernment um, so that we're not perpetuating narrative, false narratives or not buying into inaccurate or incomplete pictures of what is happening in our world either. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, that aspect of discernment is important. Uh, it's sometimes elusive, right? There's not a clear line in the sand, like you should say this here, disclose this there. I mean, there are some things, right? Um, but uh, in terms of doctor-patient confidentiality and certain roles, there's clear lines. But generally speaking, for, for those of us who are just folks trying to build connections, trying to think of possibilities that can heal our country and our own communities, there might not be the same kind of script uh, in terms of what we should or shouldn't do when we should or shouldn't say things. And so, um, you know, what has been most helpful for me is um, following my intuition, um, again, really turning inward and, and saying, like, does this feel like too big of a risk? Um, because no one's entitled to my vulnerability. That's not what it's, uh, that's not at all what this is about, right? No one is entitled to my story. Um, no one is in, entitled to a, a bold conversation with me, like, to be able to have the kinds of, of meaningful connections that we're talking about, it must be consensual. <laughs> there must be multiple parties coming to the table and saying, you know what, we want to do the hard work of really talking about how these greater systems are impacting our individual lives. We know it's going to be risky. We know there's going to be some conflict and some discomfort, and we all agree to that process together. That's where then this kind of transformation and real possibilities can happen, but it must be a, a consensual process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because you can't bully someone right. into vulnerability or into having, you know, these very important conversations, right? Uh, because that's not going to get us to kind of a new vision for our future together um, or even build kind of those trusting relationships <laughs> where we can have more conversations, right? Or really get to the root of a variety of different uh, problems. So definitely a reminder that vulnerability and these connections are consensual, right? We need buy-in from everyone. We cannot bully people um, into it. Um, so let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So we're back 
on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Ariel Ashley, an assistant professor of community psychology, counseling, and family therapy at St. Cloud University. And we've spent a lot of our time talking about how to create vulnerability and foster these very deep connections so that we can broach some of these very sensitive topics and have bold conversations. And of course, all of this within a context of um, an ongoing health crisis, also ongoing um, racism, sexism, classism, um, so many various dimensions of power um, that we have been seeing play out in a variety of different ways, um, particularly you know, over this past year, over these past several months. Um, and then at the same time, there's also been this push to just kind of like business as usual, right? The U.S. has not taken, you know, extreme measures like other countries have as far as lockdowns, as far as payments to its citizens or residents to encourage and allow people to stay home. And as of right now, the U.S. has an increasing death toll, right, with coronavirus that I'm sure has touched everyone who's listening, you know, in some way, um, but we also haven't had, you know, really a national moment of grieving or even acknowledgement really of the, the immense toll that this virus has taken on all of us. So with that, I'm wondering what, what can we do or how are you even navigating these kind of competing ridiculous demands <laughs> to continue to do work. If you have a job, continue to go to work and continue to produce, but also to somehow, I guess, deal with, acknowledge, understand, work through um, all these crises that we're living through. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially in my role as a professor, right? As a faculty member, I am, uh, my responsibility is to share content with my students, to educate them, to prepare them for their careers. And I'm situated in a school of health and human services. I'm situated in a department of counseling and community psychology. And so thinking about um, the tension of the moment is very real. And you described it um, really acutely. For me, it has been a challenge quite transparently. Um, day to day, I, I with, okay, how much can I try to uh, grasp a, a sense of, of normalcy of pre-COVID routine just for a sense of my own wellness to, 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 to you know, maybe have the, the ground beneath me shake a little less by just, you know, grabbing a grasping towards old routines. Um, but then the next day, recognizing like, wow, if I feel like a hot mess, if I'm emotionally exhausted, if I cannot scroll anymore because it's just defeating, discouraging, uh, saying, how might students, how might my colleagues also be impacting this? And is it honestly even ethical to continue to go to the workplace, to continue to show up and teach without creating space to name some of those very real affective things that we are all struggling with. Um, and so part of it for me has been trying to use my positional power in ways that create space for both. So almost all of my classes, I start with a meditation or a practice, um, inviting students to do some deep breathing, um, to, to share, to do a check-in, like how are things going? How are you? How's your family? How's health? How are people doing in terms of um, safety uh, and, and emotional wellness in light of all 
are, are experiencing in this time. Um, and I being able to create space for others to kind of emotionally check in and calibrate has been really helpful for me as well. And we're able to get to a space like, okay, let's also talk about what we're supposed to be learning today. Um, but let's not just pretend that all this other stuff isn't impacting our ability to learn because it, it is. And this is plays out and is true for, for K-12 as well as a, a college or higher education text, um, you know, philosophy. And I, I think yours as well is that, um, people, students are, are people first. <laughs> and so how do we make sure to tend to um, our, uh, the very real kind of wellness issues of this pressing time, in addition to working to facilitate learning and growth and development? Absolutely. It's definitely a balancing act. And you're right, you know, at, in my role as a professor, I definitely, my philosophy, my teaching philosophy is, you know, students are people first. And I think I felt a lot of trepidation going into this, you know, this new semester, just because I know that our students are already, we're juggling so much. And now with COVID, you know, on top of it. And I think, you know, the very first email I got at the start of this semester, which just started this week, but the very first email was an email from a student saying that, you know, one of her family members had passed from COVID and that mm -hmm. she was so sorry she was going to miss class. And I'm like, you shouldn't have to be sorry about right. missing class, you know, right. but that just you know, speaks to the tone of the semester and how so many people in a variety of fields are feeling because it's not just it's not business as usual even though we're still doing the business <laughs> as usual but it's a whole new terrain um that none of us of course were prepared for yes yes it's so true and, and to me this is a great opportunity to connect with vulnerability to to be able to name with my colleagues I'm affected by this. I'm affected by the fact that students are contracting COVID and then are out for weeks, that colleagues and, and um, uh, uh, acquaintances are like suffering um, in light of some of the, the realities right now. Um, to be able to, to, to name that, to be able to vulnerably share the ways in which that's kind of impacting not just my personal life, but also how I show up professionally. I think that also can allow us to then show up more holistically and authentically in our professions, which I would argue is actually a really important thing. Like if there is something that I hope the US economy, marketplace, like professional world takes away from this incredibly challenging and devastating time of the pandemic is that we may need to reevaluate how we define our purpose and our priorities. And, you know, just hustling um, and, and only thinking of our professional accomplishments accomplishments and what speaks to our kind of personal contributions or legacy, um, that is a formula for disaster. Um, you know, how can we get reconnected to um, relationships to the people that really matter, to caring about each other as people? Um, I think that connection um, kind of with the, the human <laughs> instead of just the productive is really uh, an important takeaway for me um, in this challenging time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you brought up two really great points. So one, as we're thinking about how do we, 
you know, live in this new normal, um, one, using our positional power, whatever amount of power we may have, where we are to create a more vulnerable space or just a more, just a space where we acknowledge the humanness of everyone involved, right? So, and you can definitely do that regardless of, you know, what your field is or what type of job, you know, you work in. Um, and then the other thing that you mentioned was redefining both purpose and priorities. Um, so rethinking what I think about it like this, like rethinking what success looks like in your life. Like, is it, you know, being a, you know, little human robot and producing <laughs> whatever it is that you produce, right? Or is there some other way that you find value and you feel connected to others or you feel fulfilled that maybe is separate from, you know, this very US centric version of showing up in the world, which is very much, you know, you just work, work, work. You don't take the sick days hello coronavirus um like you just you know it's very work centered um unlike other countries where there's a different approach to work and to rest right mm -hmm. so rethinking or redefining our purpose and priorities so I know we talked about how this kind of new normal looks in the workplace, but have you found any strategies or any suggestions for how we kind of navigate this new normal, like in our personal lives, as we're all kind of forced indoors, maybe around loved ones more than we may have, may like? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, and it's so fascinating because I think um, the, there is opportunity to end up feeling maybe uh, smothered or too connected with the folks you may, uh, you know, uh, reside with, but also feeling really disconnected from maybe those those friends or peer groups that you aren't able to see as often or regularly. So it's this both and uh, of this this challenging moment. Um, uh, you know, the ways in which um, folks are able to connect um, through uh, different platforms. So I think of even just like my, my family, um, you know, pre-COVID, I maybe talked to my dad, like, you know, once every month or two, like when things came up that were important to talk about. Um, but there's an opportunity now because everybody, nobody's going out, nobody's doing anything. Like, right, there's just, we're all kind of more um, at home because of the the coronavirus, um, there's an opportunity to kind of schedule through Zoom or Messenger or whatever other platforms, more regular family check-ins. And, and that has been um, really grounding and really helpful, kind of connecting to this idea of um, purpose and priorities um, instead of, um, you know, the nights or weekends, um, trying to get in a little bit more work, creating time and space to connect with my family, even if it's not, you know, they're not physically here. Um, for, for me also, it has been incredibly helpful to, um, I think because of COVID, a lot of the external expectations around productivity are um, at least being challenged. Like is, can these expectations uh, maintain in this, you know, very unique time? And, and I really run with that. <laughs> and so to really um, question, you know, um, how do I spend my time? And do I need to feel guilty if I'm not spending it a certain way? Um, can I give myself permission to, you know, whether it's self-care, whether it's, you know, choose to dedicate two hours on a Saturday afternoon to like nap and cuddle with my two and a half year old and not think about or guilt myself about all the things I should be doing, whether it's like housework or work work, but just to really be there in that moment with her. Oh, 
the profound like joy and healing that comes from that and letting go of the guilt narrative has been incredible. So those are some of the things that I think have been really, really helpful um, for me in navigating this time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As you mentioned, just having that time to question things as they've always been like, is this really the best way to do things? Or is this really the best way to prioritize my time? Um, and even my feelings, right? Like that, that idea of guilt, <laughs> um, which I complete that resonates with me so strongly, this guilt of like not doing enough, not, you know, being as productive as I could be. Uh, but also I think, you know, this time has given us an opportunity to connect with people in a way where we don't feel like we're bothering them, you know, because normally it seems like, oh, everyone's just so busy. And I know a lot of um, parents or older relatives often feel that way. Like, you're so busy. I didn't want to call you because I know you're so busy. Um, so I think it kind of gives people an excuse to say, I'm just going to call you. Like, you're not busy. <laughs> you're not busy. <laughs> yes. Yes, or at least you're not busy in the way, you know, that maybe it would have normally been in pre-COVID times. So more opportunities for connections and just thinking about how we started, you know, this conversation, you know, with more connections, building up that trust and that vulnerability. So when, you know, something like an insurrection at the Capitol happens, you can have a conversation about it in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been able to before because you were only talking to, you know, your dad or your friend, you know, every month or so. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, the the foundation of trust is essential. And that can start with as, as simple of a gesture as when a, a friend, a colleague, a family member calls or checks in, Instead of saying, you know, what so often I think the response is to how are you? I'm busy, right? That's oftentimes like that's the go-to. I'm I'm busy. Okay, that's that's actually not an emotional experience. Like you're describe you're responding with a verb. Okay, cool. Um, let's unpack that a little. Like, could you pause? Could you self-regulate? Could we take a deep breath and say, you know what? I'm feeling really stressed. And why? And that can be a connection. Like that can be a moment of vulnerability that isn't about like spilling your life guts and deepest secrets, but is just showing up honestly and authentically. And that can be the beginning building blocks then of, of some of these um, moments that can be helpful to have some of those conversations that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I love that example because it's so practical and it is something that 100% you experience in conversation because that mm -hmm. is, you know, it's the, hi, how are you? That's that first question, regardless of who you're talking to, that's that first question. And as you mentioned, you know, maybe you don't do that pause and, you know, like double question ask, like, no, really, how are you? Maybe you don't do that with everyone, but you do have an opportunity for people that you have built some sort of trusting foundation and relationship with to, you know, to pause and say, no, really, you know, how are you doing? Um, and then create a space where you can have a deeper connection, even just over that one question. It doesn't have to be some, you know, deep political <laughs> conversation, right? Um, but just building that trust and building a space, as you mentioned earlier, a space for people to kind of exhale and actually connect with what they've been feeling and what has been happening in, in their lives. Yeah, I think that is really important. And I think 
um, for the nation, for communities, for families to, to really be able to, to move forward and uh, to heal. Um, some of that, that connecting is essential. Uh, like we are innately relational beings. And so figuring out how do we maintain that connection to humanity, maintain kind of a groundedness in relationships, even in a time of profound disconnect, um, not because of social distancing with COVID, but because of divisiveness, because of racism and other social political issues, um, you know, what are the ways that we can pursue connection? Um, where can we find those connections that will allow us to heal ourselves and work toward um, a more healing and, and hopefully liberatory vision of the future for everyone? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you have given us so much to really apply, right? So many ways to think about creating vulnerability, starting, of course, inward so that it can come outward and some really great strategies to think about as we're navigating this, you know, this new normal. So thank you so much, Dr. Ariel Ashley, for joining us this morning. It has been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much again to Dr. Ariel Ashley. This conversation was full of really great advice and strategies to create vulnerability, to really have these deep and meaningful connections that we all yearn for. And of course, to have these bold conversations. As we've seen, it's so necessary for us to be able to talk to one another. So thank you again to Dr. Ashley. I will be using the strategies that she shared with us today in my own connections with others. And for today's positive note, since Dr. Ashley mentioned um, Dr. Brene Brown, and her great work on vulnerability, I wanted to leave you with a quote from Dr. Brene Brown, which says, staying vulnerable is a risk we have to take if we want to experience connection. And I know that we all have a very human need to feel connection. So I encourage you to stay vulnerable. And I believe that Dr. Ashley has given us a lot of great ways for us to start to create that vulnerability. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Remember, wherever you are in the world, you can always tune in on WYXR.org. I'll be back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Central. I hope that you join me here.